If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of Exodus. Uh, We'll be in the fourth chapter and reading from the 18th verse here in just a moment. Families are difficult. Families are also wonderful, but they are no doubt difficult. They can be the source of the greatest joys in life. They can be the source of some of the most harrowing sorrows in life. Families can give you a foundation, they can give you a security, they can give you help and love, and they can also give you immense frustration, difficulty, pain, and uh, for some of you, and you know this well, probably even misery. Family is difficult and wonderful because they are the closest people to you in life. They are mandatorily close to you. You are given a family. You do not inherit a family. You do not choose a family, but they are given to you. You don't get to choose those. They are simply yours. So when they are on, they are really on. And it can be beautiful and lovely. But there's also no escaping them. The brother who routinely wants to mention politics just to get the hairs on everyone who is standing there up, he is your brother. You can't do away with him. That sounds really bad. I didn't mean it to sound like that, but you can't kill him either, nor can you just separate yourself from him. Follow the notes, Doug. Follow the notes. It's not an American thing. It's not a Christian thing. It's not part of our European heritage. This is just part of what it means to live as human beings in this world. Families are a source of love and wonder and pain and sorrow no matter where you go. God has made them that way. Families are not sort of a relic of an evolutionary tool that allowed us to make more of us, but rather it is God's intention so that he might display his own love for us and those who are closest to us. In doing so, we also get to see a number of our own failures and faults. Our brief passage today truly is all about family. It's about the love and sacrifices and the purpose of family. When we read through it, it's not going to seem that way. It seems almost to be something of a throwaway. Really, what Exodus 4, 18 through 31 seem to be there for is simply to narrate how Moses gets from Midian to Egypt. It seems to be sort of the unimportant bit. Moses has been called. God has met every single one of his fears and and problems, and he has met them and answered them and said, I will overcome these things, and we're awaiting the deliverance and the confrontation that's coming in Egypt. And in the middle of all of that, we've got to get from point A to point B. It seems to be just there for structure, so the narrative will make sense. It's a skeleton, but it doesn't always seem to have a lot of meat on it. But almost like every other text, God has placed it there for far more than just structure, Here in Exodus 4, we are going to read something about what it means to be a family from the book of Exodus. So let us go to that book and read now, beginning in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did all the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of our God. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the story of Jethro in verses 18 through 20 and Jethro's advice for his family to go in peace. Moses reports back to Jethro something of what has happened. I think that you are to understand the report of Moses back to Jethro as being much more complete than what we have recorded for us in Exodus. After all, part of this, even though we're going to try and draw more out of it, is actually to get us from point A to point B without belaboring the points that have already been made. And so I have every reason to believe that Moses reports back to Jethro much more fully than what we have recorded for us here. I think the reason why what we have recorded for us here is recorded in the way that it is is because Moses still has some apprehensions about the entire plot of this thing. He has seen for 40 years prior to his going to Midian the oppression by which the Egyptians put upon the Hebrews, and he has a lot of doubts as to God's plan. He has already shown his doubts about God's plan, about how God can deliver him. And here he says, you know, I don't, I don't even know if they're alive. Nevertheless, Moses has reaffirmed to him that his journey back will be safe. It might not be safe for him once he interacts with Pharaoh, but at least the journey back there will be safe. The men who have sought to kill you are dead. And this seems to imply from Moses that it's okay to take my family. So he loads up his wife, he loads up his children, and he takes them back. I think that Jethro's answer is given in light of the verses that come both before it and after it. No doubt, sending Moses back would imply strongly for Jethro that he would have to send his daughter and his grandkids back with him. Losing Moses would be incredibly hard. We have every reason to think from Moses' life that he was a hard worker. Losing somebody who was a hard worker, who was wise and intelligent and trustworthy, would have been incredibly difficult for this man who seemed to not even have any sort of labor to, to lean on except for his daughters. That help is now gone. But as hard as it might be to lose Moses, his son-in-law, how hard it might be to lose that labor, it would be all the harder to send his daughter and his grandkids to a place where he knows danger awaits them. Yet still he sends them away with the blessing of God to go in peace. It's a phrase that indicates more than just the blessing of Jethro. 
It's not just Jethro blessing Moses as he goes and say, I, I understand. I know you've got to go. There's no hard feelings. Go in peace. Don't worry about any conflict between me and you. It's more than that. He is, he is a priest of Midian. He is not just saying there are no hard feelings between me and you, but you ought to go in the peace of God. May God watch over you. May God bless you. And peace is not just here the absence of strife, not just the absence of war. It is the idea of completion. May the Lord be with you and give you everything that you need. It is quite a blessing, actually. We would do well to dwell on the faithfulness of that statement. And I have children who, despite my and often grumbling about them, are very dear to me. Many of you have children who are very dear to you. My children love the Lord. I'm very thankful for that. And it is possible that my desire for them, my desire for the blessings of God to be upon them, my desire for them to, to experience all of the blessings of God and all the goodness of the Lord, none of that would keep me from wishing peace upon them in whatever they happen to put their hand to. But my love for them, my concern for them, might just keep me from uttering the word that comes before it, importantly, which is go. There are many places in this world that are dark, yet nevertheless need people to go. There are places that are hard, stand against what is good, that are difficult, dangerous, and dark, that need people to leave their ease, need people to leave their comfort, need people to leave their contentment to go and do what God has called them to do. And even though those places are dark and difficult and dangerous, God has a love for the people who are there. Not just the people who are oppressed, but quite often the people who are doing the oppressing. God wants to call them out of their darkness. He wants to give them the grace of Jesus Christ so that they might know a better thing than the darkness in which they dwell. Yet in order for that to happen, God has to have people who go. And every single one of them is a son or a daughter. Chances are very good that even in their going, they're going to go into a place that will threaten them, threaten their ease and their contentment, their well-being, that will threaten their very livelihood. They will go to places that are indeed very dangerous. And they will need people behind them to tell them to go in peace. Can you say it? If you are a parent, you need to think deeply about that. I've known a number of parents who seem very, very godly, who would fight tooth and nail to keep their children from going on the mission field. Can you say, go in peace? Can you say it to your grandchildren? Do you trust the protection of God enough to be able to send your children into difficult and dark and dangerous situations? Do you believe in the resurrection enough to know that even if they die, they will be with you again? The last line of verse 20 is important. Moses does not forget to take the staff of God in his hand. That staff is a picture and a symbol of the power of God that is with him. Your children, if they leave, will not be taking a staff with them. They will be taking the very spirit of God. They have power. They have protection from the Almighty. 
They will feel the pull of God to go to the nations. Do not stand in their way. They will have feet that are considered beautiful because they will take good news to lost people. Do not keep them from that glory. Rather, tell them, go in peace. Secondly, let's talk not anymore about Jethro's family so much as God's family and that they are to go in love. They are to go in love. Immediately, the Lord speaks to Moses and he reaffirms to him not just that he is going to do wonders in front of the people of Israel so that they might believe, but rather that he is also going to do wonders in front of Pharaoh. He is going to perform miracles in front of Pharaoh, mighty deeds in front of Pharaoh. And yet, there's this ominous note that God gives already that I'm going to harden his heart. The idea of hardening here is strengthening. It's a word that can be used either in a good sense or a bad sense. And in the good sense, it brings conviction. When somebody wants to do what is right, they have their will set. They've sort of counted to three, and now they're going to focus on that thing, and nothing will take them away from it. But it can very clearly also be a bad thing. It can bring obstinacy and unwillingness to be corrected. God says, Pharaoh will be strengthened in his resolve to not let my people go. And God will use that to bring more and more power to bear upon him until he crushes him, and only then will Pharaoh let him go. But God gives Moses one, one extra thing to say to Pharaoh here, which is incredibly important, and yet we don't actually hear Moses saying later. I think that we are to assume that he says it to him later, but we don't actually hear it. It's a brief statement, but it's quite important. If you, if you were to read back through Genesis and pretend like you're reading it for the first time and, and trying to get a picture of the God who is here. And even through the beginning of the book of Exodus, you could probably be forgiven for thinking that this God is an incredibly kind God, but it's sort of a, it's a dry kindness. He was kind in letting Adam and Eve actually live and clothing them. He was kind in taking Noah through the flood. He was kind in appearing to Abraham. And then to Abraham, he is exceptionally kind. There's no doubt in God's kindness. Kind to give him protection and kind to give him blessing and kind to give him possessions and kind to give him sons. He is incredibly kind again and again throughout the text of Genesis through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then all of Jacob's sons. God's kindness bleeds through. And you can read all that kindness and and still be left with this question, I, why is God doing it? What, what is God getting out of it? We know what God's purpose and intention is. We've talked about that a lot, but, but what is in it for God? After all, what we have in the book of Exodus, even going back to chapter 2, this kind of foundational statement, when God sees, God hears, and God remembers and we can think that this is all sort of obligation. It's contractual. God has made a promise, and now he's got to keep it up. So he says, I've remembered. He looks down and he sees his people being oppressed. He says, I've remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can think that, that it's a dry kindness. It's a kindness that is there because God has, for some reason, contractually obligated himself to be kind. So this little sentence is small, but it is incredibly significant because this is the first time, I think, in Scripture that we have God's kind of picture of 
loving his people. Not just being kind to them, but truly loving them. He looks and he says, you are going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to say, Israel is my firstborn son. Pharaoh, you need to understand this. All of your gods are transactional. All of your gods are, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your tit-for-tat kind of God. You do things for me, and then I will possibly do things for you. And even when you scratch, and no matter how well you scratch, there is no guarantee that those gods will actually follow through on what they've done. This is the way it is with all of our gods. You put a quarter in, you pull a lever, and you're hoping that sevens come up, but you have no guarantee. You push after success. You want your friends to know that you're successful. You want your family to think of you successful. You want your dad to think of you as successful. But you know that success, if that's what you want, has requirements and demands of you. You've got to put in time and work and effort. You've got to sacrifice. Sacrifice relationships. Sacrifice weekends. Sacrifice other joys. You will put in that work in the hopes that you might one day be considered successful. But even then, there's no guarantee. Hard work, time, none of that's a guarantee that you're going to be successful. Businesses fail all the time and not for a lack of work. Careers are derailed all the time and not for a lack of sacrifice. People desire beauty. They want people to notice them. They want people to think that they are attractive, that they are somebody to be pursued, a beautiful woman, a handsome man, so you diligently watch what you eat. You work out rigorously. You buy the best of clothes. You treat your skin well. But all that beauty one day will fade. Wrinkles will indeed come. Your hair, trust me, will indeed start to fall out. And they will see your beauty, but only as the shadow of a person who is present before them, not as the reality. All gods are like this. The gods of the ancients, whether found in little miniature statues, in great big shrines, and the gods of the present, all of them are like this. Our goal of making out from them what we want and getting so little back, there's just no guarantees. And what's more, success doesn't care if you don't get success. Fame doesn't care if you don't ever get fame. Beauty doesn't care if you ever reach it. It is a gamble, and as we like to say, the house is always going to win. So, God is incredibly clear with Pharaoh. I am not like them. He is not a God who is working for his people because they have done things for him. He is not the kind of God who is going to help his people so long as they sacrifice to him, so long as they work for him, so long as they change for him. God is telling Pharaoh, I'm not like your ram God, I'm not like your river God, I'm not like your sun God. I do not act only when I have been sufficiently acted upon. I don't help my people only when they come and do right for me. His relationship with his people is not transactional. It is based in love. It's no less than your own love for your son, Pharaoh. His basis for acting for the good of his people is his love for them. And his warning is you better not test that love. Pharaoh needs to understand that God is not doing this just out of a need to pay back the people of Israel. It's not transactional. 
If it's transactional, then maybe Pharaoh can last long enough and God will get bored or God will say it's not worth it or God will look at his people and look at all that he's got to do and say maybe I should try somebody else. God is warning them, there is no one else. This is my firstborn son. There's no stopping it. There's no, there's no holding back my purposes and my goodness for them. This idea of God's son is spoken of much more fully in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. As it is, it seems as though the people of Israel are embodied in and one with Jesus. Matthew begins his gospel by continually pointing at these very events in the exodus of his people from Egypt and saying these things happen to Jesus because Jesus is Israel. Jesus is called out of Egypt after fleeing from a homicidal killer. He's brought back into the land to go into the water just as the people will go through the Red Sea and then taken out into the desert just as these people are taken out into the wilderness. But every place that Israel fails, Jesus is shown to be true. He is shown to be faithful. Matthew is not so subtly telling us that Jesus is indeed Israel. But you need to realize what the Lord is saying here is not Jesus and Israel, they're, they're like one another. Israel is like my firstborn son. He's not saying that. He's saying Israel is my firstborn son. Even at this time, God sees his people in his son, Jesus Christ. It has never been the case when he saw them outside of that. He always views them, always sees them inside the person of Jesus Christ. He has foresworn that Jesus would come. He had foreordained that Jesus would be sent. And he has always foreseen his people in the love of Jesus itself. God's love for his people is always centered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God protects, God forgives, God is merciful to his people in Jesus. Don't be wrong. I mean, God shows his love for the world. It poured all day yesterday. That rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun that shines right now falls on those who call Christ their Lord and those who deny him up until the very day they die. And both of those things are a sign of God's love and kindness to the people. But outside of Jesus, God's love knows an end. Outside of Christ, God's love has limits. It is the same love today for those people that he has, even for Pharaoh. And we know that that love meets its limit. A love meets its limit at the ending of his firstborn son's life and at the Red Sea where he will bury him. But God's particular, powerful, never-ending love is always for his people in Christ. Friends, God loves you in Christ. You don't need to barter for his love. You don't need to give this up or sacrifice this thing or, or stop doing this other thing before God starts to love you. You don't need to change so that God might love you. God's love will yield all the change you need. Go in love. Third, Moses' family is to go in faith. Once you get to verse 24, everything changes. This is perhaps the strangest and the weirdest and the most out-of-place passage of almost anything in the Bible, and I feel like I say that way too often. The Bible is an incredibly strange book, and this is a really, really strange passage. God calls Moses, and then he appears to, to 
want to take Moses' life, and he appears to start taking Moses' life so that Zipporah, his wife, knows that he's going to die, and the solution is, of course, to circumcise their son. It's all very weird. So let's work very briefly through what actually happens. They are traveling from Midian all the way back to Egypt. It's a long journey. They're going to have to make stops because they've got kids in tow and they're probably crying every 30 minutes to stop for a restroom break. So he's got to stop and eventually they make camp. And at some time, something happens to Moses. We're not sure what it is. But it is quite clear that first it's from the Lord. It is the Lord's doing. It is not Satan. It's not some evil desert demon god. It's not any of that. It's the Lord. Secondly, it is the threatening of Moses' life. He sought to put him to death. Third, it is somewhat slow acting in that it's not immediate, right? This is, this is not a brain hemorrhage. It's not something that takes you in an instant. God allows for it to interact with Moses, whatever it is, enough to alert Zipporah to the danger, but not enough to kill him before Zipporah can act. But we aren't to think for a second that this is like some sort of slow-moving pancreatic cancer that's going to kill him over three months. If Zipporah doesn't act now, he's going to die. So there's a threatening of Moses' life that is just long enough for Zipporah to act and to save it. And somehow... She knew that circumcision was indeed the answer. So what's going on here? I think that she knows and probably had talks with Moses about circumcision. Remember, she is a daughter of Midian. She lives in Midian. Back in Genesis 25, we know that Abraham takes a wife after the death of Sarah. Her name is Keturah, and she bears him several sons. One of those sons is Midian, no doubt the great-great-great-great-grandfather of his wife, Zipporah. And given that Abraham not only circumcised Ishmael, or Isaac, but also circumcised Ishmael, it's very, very likely that he circumcised the rest of his sons as well and passed down something of the rite of circumcision to them, even if he held out that there was a special significance in it to Isaac. Yet, in all of this, Moses being a Hebrew, himself being circumcised on the eighth day, his son is not circumcised. We don't know why. My guess is it's the fact that Moses was an Egyptian. Being circumcised, I don't know how much you remember from being eight days old, I remember very little. And certainly Moses has no recollection of his own circumcision and no recollection of probably ever seeing a circumcision or knowing that it's a right After three months, he was raised in Pharaoh's house. After a couple of years, he was given fully over to Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's daughter to be raised with Egyptian customs and Egyptian rites. It is unlikely that he has ever seen circumcision. It is unlikely that he even knew much of the rite. Moses seems to be, in fact, still acting like an Egyptian. So when Moses becomes ill and his life is suddenly on the line, it seems like Zipporah knows precisely what the problem is. There should be protection here. Circumcision means more than just protection, but at the very least, especially for those lines of people who are not found in Isaac, it means that God will watch over them and protect them. He is a shield and a protector. He is your God, especially for the children of Isaac. And so Zipporah circumcises their son. And then says, 
to Abraham, you are a bridegroom of blood. It says it twice. The text repeats it. It's difficult to understand what that is. I always read it like she was angry because it seems like something that, that you would scream at somebody when you're angry. I don't know. Um, certainly, this is in the middle of the night. This is not pillow talk. This isn't romantic, right? You know, post-surgery hands and saying bridegroom of blood to people. Not romantic. Um, so there's something else going on here. Bridegroom can mean husband, but it also just means kinsman. I think what Zipporah is actually saying is, you are related, in a sense, to me. We go way back. This rite of circumcision was given to both of us through two completely different lines that have vastly separated from one another. But nevertheless, we are bound by this blood, by the blood of Abraham. So much so for me, all the more so for you. In other words, she's reminding Moses that you're not an Egyptian. Stop acting like you're an Egyptian. Stop treating your son like he's an Egyptian. Your son is a Hebrew. You are a Hebrew. You are a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a child of promise who is told to circumcise their children to be faithful to God in all that they do. It is interesting to note that this is the third time that Moses has been saved by a woman in the book of Exodus. And women from every, each woman from a different nation, an Egyptian woman, a Hebrew woman, and a Midianite woman, as though God is saving the man who will save Israel so that he can save the nations, through the nations. We can be really upset with Moses, and we can think that he is, I don't know, out of touch with something, but Moses is learning on the job. He's faithful to go, when God calls him to go, he's faithful to take his family. And once he gets to Egypt, he will be faithful to do the things that the God who appeared to him in the burning bush has called upon him to do. What God is reminding him is this. You cannot go with me halfway. If you were going to go before Pharaoh and you were going to say, you are to let my people go, says the Lord, you can't say that unless you're one of my people. You can't demand the release of your brothers unless they're truly your brothers. You are either all in with me on this or you're not in with me at all. Either you are a man faithfully devoted to me and you will go in fullness of faith or you can't go at all. Moses is going to learn what Jesus is going to say. You cannot put your hand to the plow and look behind you. Paul says that everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do unto the glory of God. James is likewise clear cannot have friendship with the world and not be at enmity with God. God demands the entirety of your life. He wants you to be faithful to him in everything. You don't get to be faithful to him in bits and pieces. You don't get to say, I'll have this be faithful, but this is not. I'm going to be faithful to come and to listen, to approve everything that's going on on Sunday, but I'm going to kind of depart from all of that during the rest of my week. We need to be people who are faithful in all things. We are to be like Zipporah, reminding brothers and sisters when they are about to go wrong of who they are, of the God that they belong to. And just in case you're worried that God might come to you and try and smite you in the middle of the night and you don't have a Zipporah near you, you need to be reminded of what's going on here. God is a God who knows. 
He knows the end from the beginning. He knows his people, how they're going to act and react to situations. This entire episode was perfectly planned with Zipporah present, with a frame of time present for Zipporah to act so that Zipporah could indeed do the very thing she needed to do to save Moses' life. That's not an accident. It is a warning, an extreme, but nevertheless, a warning. Moses needs to know that because he has been given a great task does not exempt him from his responsibilities. But God is only impressing a warning upon them. God is faithful and good, friends, and he wants all of your life to be his. He wants it for your good, and he will indeed discipline you to bring your life into line with what his will is. That is not to bring you to an end but rather to bring you to a good end, for a good purpose. And at times that discipline is going to seem harsh, and at times it's going to seem difficult, but it is nothing less than love. If you are to go, you must go in faith. And finally, the last verses we can talk about Israel's family, that they will go in worship. Everything that God says indeed comes true. In verses 27 through 31, The book of Exodus rattles off thing after thing after thing after thing that God had spoken would happen, actually happening. Aaron does indeed come out to meet Moses. He does indeed seem excited to meet him and respectfully greet him with a kiss. He loves his brother and is happy to see him. Moses faithfully tells Aaron everything that God told them to do. They faithfully go before the elders. Then they go before the people. He performs the signs and the wonders. The people and the elders do actually believe in him just like God said that would happen. And now, they bow their heads and they worship. These verses, this short little passage, is a microcosm of what the entire book of Exodus is meant to do. And frankly, what the entire scripture is there for us to do. To hear what God has done and what God is going to do. To see the works of the Lord amongst the people of God so that you might believe both what you hear and you see and you might worship. So do you believe what you hear? That God's grace is poured out through the cross to you. That Jesus sacrificed his own life, although completely unnecessary. For him to give up his life, he does it willingly so that you might have his life. He will take upon himself your death and pay the debt that you could not pay. And he will overcome death, not by escaping it, not by avoiding it, but by submitting himself to it fully, he will overwhelm it in the grave so that all who believe and trust would have life, full life, a life that is blessed with the presence of God that subsists even though your body might die. Do you believe what you hear? Do you believe what you see? Whether in baptism, when we say this person, through their confession, has rightly been united with Christ in a death like his and raised to walk in the newness of life. We say that this is indeed what happens when you confess that you are sunk into the ground, you are sunk into the grave, you are swallowed up by the waters of death only to walk again. It's a promise of the resurrection, a promise of what God is already working in you. Do you believe when you see it? Do you believe what you see when we take the Lord's Supper? That Christ has died and bled to nourish you, to give you life, to help you along, to provide grace for you. Not just for the future, not just because you need it when you go before the Lord in judgment, but because you need it every single day. He is there for you. 
But do you see it even in the brothers and sisters that surround you? Do you hear of their confessions, of their testimonies, to how God has worked in their lives? People moved by the Spirit to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's taken their careers away from them. It's taken meaningless pleasures that they used to have away from them. It's taken many of their comforts away from them. It's taken out of their lives that they used to know into something that they would rightly confess is infinitely better. They confess the kindness of God. They confess to the work that he has done in their lives and all this through the wonder of Jesus and his cross. Israel hears, sees, and worships. And we're here to do exactly the same. All of us brought together from various backgrounds, some wealthy, some poor, some highly educated, some not, all brought together to share as one family, bound by the blood of Christ in the glory of God. We are indeed one family. We are indeed one nation, one temple, and one body with one mission to worship our God. Let us never forget that. Hear and see what the Lord has done and worship him. Let's pray. Father, we have come here to worship you, to read and to be reminded of your great works and to respond the only appropriate way by faith in worship. We know of the great deliverance that Jesus Christ has given to us. We have heard it. We have seen it. Let us trust with it in the entirety of our lives. Let our worship of you be in truth. And may you be praised forever by your people. We ask all of this for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.